Welcome to the Ripple Effect Martial Arts Podcast. Okay, I'm, my name's Mark Brady. I'm the creative director with Ripple Effect Martial Arts and honored to have with us today um, Mr. Devin Arkfeld. Am I saying that right? Okay, he's a fifth degree black belt in Taekwondo and also a master performer and instructor with the nunchaku. So um, he is, uh, he placed second place in the 2019 Golden Combo Tournament and second place again in the 2020 last year's FNF, that's the Freestyle Nunchuck? Freestyle yeah. Okay, World Chuck, w World Cup Nunchuck uh, Tournament. So th thank you so much for being here. Nurse. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background in the martial arts? Like, how, how did you get started? Um, well, I got started when I was eight years old. Um, my high karate uh, put some flyers in kind of the, kind of the um, you know, the news area of the hallway. And as my dad was picking me up, I was just, you know, pulling them out, looking at them. And I saw this karate one. And... Um, this isn't the most noble start. I just like turned to him and I was like, Dad, I want to learn how to beat people up. Um, okay. What was also in my mind at that time was my older sister who would just wreck me every day, you know? And um, so I thought I could get a little bit of confidence through there and get a little self-defense and just get some action. The but, um, yeah, I found out that a friend of mine down the block was also doing it there, and then I just came to really like and enjoy it. Um, yeah, that's where that started. You know, I think that that's a that's a common story. I I think that the the Karate Kid. I grew up in that era, and everyone who saw that movie thought identified with Daniel. Right? You going? I, I get pushed around. I want to learn how to not get pushed around anymore. And at first, to me too, it man that means I need to learn how to push people around. Um, but then you learn that it's so much deeper than that and more complex. Yeah, I was focused on winning the fight, but then I realized that not getting in a fight is winning the fight, and being a good person all around is winning in life. So um, I really, really uh, was happy that I came to it with such an aggressive energy because I got a lot more out of it than I was hoping to get. That's awesome. Did the instructors... How did they tame or, or use, they don't tame it, but I, how, how did they help you control and really concentrate that energy? Well, I think my initial motive for starting was aggressive, but once I started there, I think they just provided a fun enough environment that that wasn't even the fore, forefront of my mind at all. So the moment I was there, the moment I saw it, um, I know Ripple Effect, you know, you guys run a very similar program uh, to, uh, you know, Mile High, as well as, you know, Fitz 280, a lot of us that you know, kind of came from there ultimately. Um, just kind of this program that, you know, came around really, I think, tamed me instantly. It provided a good, comforting uh, sort of environment where I could, uh, you know, be myself, have fun, and then also happen to learn martial arts at, on the side, kind of. That's awesome. You know, I, we both schools, Mile High and Ripple Effect Martial Arts, come from the lineage of Grandmaster Junri, and he, his students from way back in the 50s and 60s talk just, they have stories, they express it the way that you just did. They say, I, I had all of this energy, and then I saw this guy on TV doing jump sidekicks, and I thought, that's what I want to do. That and, might have been something, too, is just the straight-up action. Maybe not the aggression, but the action. And, uh, I mean, this is kind of what June really did have in mind. I remember I've uh, met him once before. Really? I've read some of his writings and stuff too, and this is exactly what was in his mind when he wanted to bring martial arts to America. And this is what he's been presenting to the United Nations was as a peacemaking tool. And boy, does that work, honestly. The, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I've I've been so privileged to learn more about Grandmaster Ree um, over the last six or seven years, um, and how substantial his contributions were, not just to martial arts, but his impact on um, people in the Washington world leaders. And um, it's so great to see that continuing. So you, you you started when you were eight years old, is that right? 
And did you continue yeah. from that point to earn your black belt? Yes, for- continued nonstop. Um, yeah, went at least twice a week all the time. It was just the part that melded with my life immediately. Um, I got my black belt when I was 14, like eighth grade or so, I'd say. And uh, that was awesome. Um, it was at one of those Breckenridge tests. Okay. I could feel literally the atmosphere lift off. Um, but I was more psyched than ever to just keep going, too. Can, um, can you never ex- had the intention. Go ahead. Well, uh, can you explain for people who uh, don't know what one of those black belt tests at Mile High back in the day and currently um, we have them. So for people who don't know, these are major tests, uh, right? Currently we run them twice a year. And um, can you just explain a little bit about what your experience was like at that first one? Yeah, um, well, I'll also talk about kind of your color belt tests first, okay. at least back in my day. Um, usually your color belt test was, you know, it took place during your normal class time once every three or four months, and uh, that's just how it was until you were upper brown belt. Now, once you are upper brown belt, you would go to your black belt test, and those black belt tests usually are Friday night to Saturday day. You know, you get to go home and sleep in between, and uh, they're definitely a lot harder because they're longer than one hour. And um, you got some running, you got some straight up workouts. There's some fun seminars, um, but you're gonna spar a lot of people taller than you. You know, you're gonna spar a lot. You're gonna do your formal test, you're exhausted at the end. But it's something that's definitely manageable um, if you've got your curriculum down. Now you got a Breckenridge test, which um, I think Ripple Effect does it twice twice a year. But for us, uh, back in my day, it was once a year uh, during October, November, and that would be starting Friday night at six o'clock. It would go all the way to middle of the day on Sunday, probably ending at five o'clock the latest, let's say. And um, I don't mention any sleep in there. And you, you'll get some sleep, but usually you don't have enough time. And a lot of times the higher rank you are, um, unless you're running a lot of it, you get even less sleep because you have to supervise the rest. But for me on the way to Black Belt, I was conditional and uh, you know, past prep cycle, you know, did that half year's conditional ready to do this. and. Uh, yeah, Friday night was just probably 6 o'clock p.m. to, I'm just throwing out there, maybe like 3 a.m. that that night of just working out, working out drilling the same form over and over. Um, Me and a lot of cool, interesting people, seminars here, um, already getting pretty tired of working out more. And then you're given maybe two hours to have your dinner and go to bed. But who can do that in that amount of time? So... You gotta be back. Really, the only thing I had time to do was get dinner and shower, and then you're back. Now you gotta do a mile run in the morning. Um, but then you gotta stay up there, do your sprints, do a lot more, and then from maybe seven in the morning when you're done with all that, you go until maybe seven in the morning the next day, so this is Sunday morning, having worked out, do the forms, done a couple seminars, um, had 30 minutes for lunch, and uh, um, just, try to keep on trucking and really the hardest parts of it for me were um when they sat you down to do nothing but listen uh to uh you know a little chat because you were struggling to stay awake there and uh other you could see a lot of people kind of had their assigned buddies with them their friends who would like bump them awake <laughs> because you know yeah. you definitely don't want to fall asleep when a master's talking and <laughs> especially don't want to fall asleep during the easiest part of the test um, but that was really the hardest for me. And uh, after more sparring, after more workouts, after, you know, not that much sleep, then you got the formal test, the part that everybody's been waiting for. You're beat, you're tired. Um, but just like in martial arts, your opponent doesn't care. You still have to do it. You got to do it good. And then uh, nothing is better than doing that victory circle at the end, too, where, you know, everybody's clapping. It's a little party. You uh, show off your form. Somehow you have more energy than you did in the formal test because now you made it. And uh, then you just had a blast and everybody goes home, hibernates for a few months, and then you're back at it. <laughs> um, but So, yeah, I definitely put a lot of significance on that. And those are experiences I definitely wouldn't trade at all. Um, they were the most freaking awesome, stressful and best times of my martial arts career, I would that, say. That's awesome. I'm so glad that you put it that way because the the point isn't to emphasize every, every time you talk about the stress or what's yeah. intimidating about it it's with a, a joy uh, at having yeah. done it and endured it and um i've 
participated in my three black belt tests. I've been to many more. Um, and what is amazing to me is that the, the students, especially the younger ones, the challenge is just like you said, it isn't when you're active, um, sparring, doing your weapons forms, doing your um, formal presentations. Uh, it's when you need to listen and sit and be quiet and listen. And when we're talking about kids and that discipline and what teachers look for and what parents look for, what I as a parent look for out of martial arts is that discipline. And so to know that there are these tests every day in class, there are those discipline elements, but there are these tests where it's really challenging. And in this environment with hundreds of other testers, I've got to show respect. And that's a hard thing for kids to do and, and you really learn it. Um, well, so you have gone on to earn multiple uh, new ranks in Taekwondo beyond your black belt. What, what rank are you? A fifth degree, is that correct? I'm a fifth degree, yes. Um, and of course, also gone on to instruct. Um, what's your, how, how did that transition happen? When did you begin to instruct other students? So I was a second degree black belt by then and I was the top ranked student in my school. Um, there was just no other student uh, beyond me. And um, so I was at Westminster Mile High Karate, which is in a different location than where it is now, um, if anybody is familiar with it. And um, I finished school one day and um, they asked me if I could run it. Um, said I'd have to come and open up the school each day, um, you know, get it clean, get ready, make some calls and whatnot. Uh, get it going and we did have a program director you know an adult who could take care of the adult side of things um, you know who could take care of all the paperwork and intros and whatnot um, but he didn't have the expertise to you know be a, you know the lead instructor on the floor for the black belts especially too so mm -hmm. I took that up I felt about ready for it but it was definitely uh, rough I was too focused on a you know being able to stand at the front of the class I didn't have much of an anxiety issue with that because I had a lot of experience with leadership and swatting. Um, but to you know plan the class, to uh, keep it afloat, to make sure everybody's satisfied, I had a bad issue with um, saying uh, or being monotone, uh, not bringing the energy because I was just too focused on staying afloat. But I wouldn't say it was necessarily bad. I was uh, highly focused but highly... Um, out of ideas at the same time. Um, but I think, yeah, it was like a bird getting kicked out of the nest, you know, learning to fly right there. And um, I I still wouldn't trade that, it was good. Um, and, you know, everybody has an instructor program where they get their instructors going. I didn't really get that until after I was comfortable with my instructing. Um, so it was just a lot of, uh, um, yeah, kicked out of the nest sort of moment. But I really enjoyed it. I did have my best friend at the time who was a conditional black belt to help and um, he couldn't, you know, teach the black belts, but, you know, us two ran school. We went to high school together as well so we could plan while we were there at lunch. And then eventually our uh, next two in line, they were second degree and middle first degree got on and then there was a good balance. So us four really kind of ran and, you know, totally clobbered the school too, just had a good time. But that was over the course of about two years that this stressful start to instructing came to kind of a smoother ride and, uh, you know, kind of feeling better identity with the school. That's awesome. I, I'm, I, that's a great analogy. Bird kicked out of the nest and you really, it's amazing how you learn starkly and kind of frighteningly how much, <laughs> how inexperienced, I guess. I was the exact same age, 17 years old, and I was really good at guitar. I, I just... I mean, I practiced all the time. I really could smoke on this, you know, uh, electric guitar, solos, everything. Never played with other people, though. I I've always practiced just on my own, played along with recordings. And I had this um, uh, chance, it was a surprise, sort of, to go on stage with this band, that local band that um, I had seen a bunch of times. And it was on my birthday, and they said, and 
come up on stage and we're gonna and I brought my guitar up there and I instantly I looked at that crowd and I looked at these guys in the band and I just went I had no idea what to do and they said well just put, we're gonna play a slow blues and E how about that and I just gulped and got through it and people clapped at the end and I went off the stage just white as a ghost um, but that was my introduction. That was getting kicked out of the nest. And it, it's, it's just amazing to think about an eight-year-old starting in karate, earning a black belt, moving through a few more years of life, and then going, and now you're going to stand in front of the class and you're in charge of them. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. We saw it was oh, please go ahead. Oh, it was rough was all I was going to add. But, um, yeah, I couldn't have it either way, but I also don't know how else it would have gone either. Um, well, let's yeah, talk... I think because of that, I got a lot more comfortable with teaching because I had to. Um, and then from there on, I just... Uh, yeah, no, I think that's it. It was just... It was what it was. But also in martial arts, when does that not happen? When does something unexpected not fly your way? Right. You know? Um so you gotta be ready for it. Um, of course, that wasn't you know in a sparring sort of situation, but uh, well. Know, so speaking really of that, uh, of of sparring or just generally competition, um, that's another place where you, you practiced and practiced. Now it's time to compete in a tournament. Um, what was your first introduction to competition? Uh, it would just be the intramural tournaments that Mile High used to hold all the time. Uh, very similar in format to the tournaments that we're all familiar with. Um, so it was just with, you know, our sister schools. We're very happy. Uh, you know, we know each other, and it's just good, friendly competition. Um, I hadn't done a tournament outside of that um, until, actually, February last year, and that was a different kind of feeling. Um, and this isn't the nunchuck one. It was uh, a karate-style tournament. Okay. And um, I practice what's called Kobodo weapons martial art with a karate school over in Erie. And so I did my Kobodo form there. Um, but it was very different because, you know, with us, we're a little bit more hyper. We're a little more sporty in American Taekwondo. And um, we go pretty darn fast sometimes. Um, we put intensity on every move while over in, you know, this cry turn, at least they want you to take it very slow. They want to show you. Uh, you want to show control that you could take a very slow-mo step but keep the balance through it. Um, and then the sparring was very uh, very much more intense, a lot more painful, no pads, and wow. uh, takedowns allowed. But um, I think, uh, you know, having to bring intensity to every single move like we do in our Taekwondo tournaments, I felt a lot more energetic and confident at an unfamiliar place. So I think it's a good training, especially if you want to go to a tournament outward, I mean, outside. And um, I know that wasn't necessarily a question, but it just got me thinking about that, how it compares to you know, these other tournaments out it, there, which I think are representative of most tournaments in the area. Right. You know, I think it, it does address that question because, again, when someone's beginning in a martial arts program, it's like, well, what am I going to get out of this? And I think you've hit it several times. It's preparation for what comes next, for, for what you can't imagine that you'd encounter. Um, and I, we took a visit with a school class to a fire station a few years ago, and you get a tour of the whole station, and you get to look at where they sleep, where they eat, um, and then where they prepare if that alarm bell rings. And when I saw that, and everyone neatly packed lockers and bags with all of this pretty intense equipment and their suits and everything, none of which can be neglected at all. It's absolutely necessary for, for their lives. And I thought, wow, this looks like prep cycle. This, you know, it, it looks what prep cycle or the black belt tests prepare you for because you have to take care of dozens of weapons and items and your uniform and be able to transport that and rearrange it um, at a moment's notice and it's it's just preparation yeah all within a time limit too right you know you can put your pads on within a minute or two minutes 
you have everything so neatly organized, you can tear it apart um, the very moment it's called for. And you can be in the middle of doing Chun G, and they're like, all right, get your pads on. Right, right. And go, just like those firefighters. So I think that's a great place to tour. Um, wow, that, that's a great analogy. It's, it's wow. really amazing how much um, martial arts does prepare you for. Uh, it's almost limitless, I, I, I feel like. Um, I, speaking of, back to competition, so when you competed in the 2019, uh, that was the... Golden Combo. The, the Golden Combo Tournament, um, that's a, is that a weapon-specific tournament or nunchuck-specific? Nunchuck-specific. Okay. So that, that one, that was a good time. I, um, for about a year before that, um, well, since I started martial arts when I was eight years old, I took the nunchucks immediately. Um, I wouldn't say I was like super mega obsessed with them back then, but like if I had to choose a weapon, that was my weapon. I was uh, relatively great at those among the rest. Um, and I could do every variation of hand rolls, but I just kind of stayed there throughout the whole rest of the martial arts career. If anything, the new bro or something every few years. It was just the weapon I was comfortable with, but I didn't pursue it hard. But about like two or three years ago, um, while I was in college, I um, was bored whenever I got done with homework and such, but um, I saw my nunchucks and I just don't know exactly what ticked, but I just started kind of working on them a lot more and kind of seeing what else is out there. Um, I never looked at the internet much, um, as long as it's been around as much as, I, as I've nun uh, seen nunchucks. Uh, but I remember just all the cool videos I've ever seen in the past, and I was thinking, like, you know, what else can you do? But then I just started getting more obsessed. I started kind of cataloging uh, my improvements on, like, Instagram so I could kind of keep it out there as a promise, uh, as a public promise that I'm just going to keep pursuing this. And then um, through doing that and then kind of obligating myself to, you know, keep putting something new out there, um, the person who organized the Golden Combo Tournament reached out to me among many others and was like, I'm organizing this tournament um, to, you know, get people together and do this. And uh, what's kind of cool is that, that the fact that it was online, and this was before COVID as well, um, he did it because he already just wanted the world to kind of get involved with it. Um, and also, he came from Netherlands, and over in Netherlands, nunchucks have a really large presence for some reason. Um, and in Europe, they have circus tournaments just for nunchucks, uh, just for freestyle and also traditional. And so he was a champion in some of those circuits, and so he got three other champions uh, to do it. And so reach out to me and many other people, got about like 500 or so people in this. And um, it was a tournament where I had three qualifying rounds where you had to get in the top three. And so I got in on the second one, and uh, all the top three, so nine total, nine total um, at the very end of that year would then battle for first place um, and what I really liked about it was it wasn't a tournament where you know you perform once and you're done or you perform you know a couple times all in the same day and you're done but you have the opportunity to grow between the rounds so I got to do my submission I didn't qualify in the first round but I got to see why first second and third place of that round did and um, uh Oh, was it? I was also, I preferred single nunchucks. I like putting both hands on one chuck and manipulating really heavily. Um, but I uh, saw that all third, all first through third place were double nunchucks. And not that I was saying that the judges had a bias towards double nunchucks or anything, but I saw that, you know, they would just keep one nunchuck in the air while they manipulate the other and grab. And it was just a tangled mess of technique. So then it got me to improve myself even more and kind of work on that a lot more and I talked to the guy who organized the tournament he actually gave me some tutorials he was that passionate about nunchucks that he was helping the participants all of them uh, you know improve and do their best for this tournament which I am so mega thankful for and uh, using a lot of those moves and a lot of the ideologies he taught me that's how I qualified and then from there I just spent anywhere between five minutes to three hours a day working on my chucks hitting myself in the face, <laughs> dropping them and annoying people when they make sounds. <laughs> and um, yeah, then I did that final, that, um, the clip that I submitted that got me uh, second place in the world, took me 27 hours to nail, not to plan, but to land. 
And wow. Yeah, I uh, was practicing it at Success Martial Arts. Uh, Galloway would let me in school, and I would be there uh, for five hours every day before class started. And um, just working at it. And then sometimes they would come in, they would see me. I would do the first three moves, mess up, go back. First three, four moves, mess up, mess up on the first move. Uh, finally get through that barrier and then forget what I had to do. Get tired, change my shirt because I was sweating. Uh, I had to bring extra shirts every day um, and eventually finally landed it. What was funny though was when I was doing it, as I was uh, the one I landed, was I heard the, uh, my phone go off with a little notification in the middle of it. Didn't think much of it, kept going, landed the combo. And when I came back, I saw that it stuttered the video in the middle. Oh, no. And it was during such a transition, an easy transition of one of my moves that it looked like I could have clipped it. But so thankfully for me, um, Success had uh, one of these hanging decorations in the back that was uh, swaying in the wind. <laughs> I immediately sent my video to the organizer. I was like, this is what happened. I don't know what to do. Do I have to land this again? And he said, like, I have a video producer friend who looked at this and he was like, there's no way that um, swaying object could have, you know, been misplaced in that cut. So we know your video is very real. Wow, that's unreal. But that scared me at the very end. I was like nearly crying in front of Master Galloway. <laughs> I, had this video. I was like, but this happened. So they, yeah, and that touches on a couple of other things. Honesty and, you know, the integrity of what you're doing. Because if you were cheating, somehow you wouldn't even need a video analysis for that to be apparent. And uh, two, that the the concept we talk about it just not even just martial artists but i think society in general talks so much emphasis on winning 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 yes. and the flip side of that is well if i'm not winning am, am i losing and really it's just it's like that edison quote i haven't failed i've just found 10,000 ways that don't work um and when you when you had your failures what what motivated you to keep working at it well honestly it was a really simple thought and it was that i knew i could land each of those moves individually and i know at some point i've landed each one after the last one so i thought what's stopping me from just doing it all in one go <laughs> um, if i've made it past that wall of like the fifth move that i kept stopping at over and over if i've done it once that means i can't so why don't i you know uh just kind of um, I'm really in a space. I think of rocket launches uh, and such. Like in the beginning, like most of them failed all the time, but they did go that high and higher at points, and some made it in a space. So why is it not possible? Why is it not realistic? Um, it's expensive as heck, uh, like ten or a hundred thousand per pound to put off the earth, um, but they still do it anyway because why? Why wouldn't you? It's if it's a thing that you can do, no matter how many times you fail. No matter how many times it blows up in your face, uh, same with Chuck's like, I know I can, so why don't I? I want to look back in my life uh, with without regret, but instead saying that was awesome. I that, did it. That's awesome. That's a, that is a wonderful attitude. I one of the when you taught the advanced um, nunchuck glowchuck seminar at Ripple Effect uh, last week. Um, one of the techniques you described, you used a Filipino word, sinawali. Um, yes, yeah, the six count, the, yeah. It, and so I, I know that from Kali, uh, it, it, is there a relationship between nunchucks or the, those weapons or those movements? Um, not that I'm the ultimate authority on the history of weapons, but um, from my belief, Kali was largely Filipino. Well, nunchucks, we associate with Japan, but they have a Chinese origin. Okay. I wouldn't discount it because, you know, warfare, weaponry, combat has always been around. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't be too hard to come up with a one, two, three strike, you know, of the right over the left over the right. So maybe you could have had that. Um, although a lot of the practical stuff you see with nunchucks is single nunchucks. So um, if you have double, I also, um, I'll say it too, as much as I love nunchucks, as much as I've been as much as I um, am quite an expert in them, I would not use them in a fight personally. I feel, I feel good and able if I were to use them, but 
I'd rather use a stick. I'd rather apply to call the I've learned, uh, or a knife, or a bow staff, or my own legs. Um, but I use more of the Cinewali as a teaching tool for learning what's called the three beat weave, where you braid them with each other. Um, but you know, uh, if you look at martial arts that have originated on different sides of the planet, they do share a lot of different techniques. So inevitably, it could be like a type of evolution. Some animals grow in a parallel way when they were never related. You know, two birds have the same type of beak for a similar right. environment. Um, I took uh, capoeira for two years. That originated in Brazil from African and Portuguese slaves. Right. Uh, sorry, uh, Brazilian slaves. And, you know, they have great kicks. They got spinning heel kicks. Um, so does Taekwondo. So does Karate. Um, so does Kung Fu. Um, they do have, you know, a different starting stance. You know, we, you know, bounce, we jump. What they do was called the Jango, which is just like a back and forth dance. But when they do launch their moves and they launch their techniques, when they react to moves, it is very similar. Maybe they have a different priority behind it or a different timing. But, uh, you know, a kick is a kick. And, uh, everybody kind of agrees on that. So, you know, if we have a one, two, three strike with, you know, uh, with a screama or double chucks or, um, you know, maybe two broadswords or machetes, then, you know, it works. It's nice. It's blurring. We can cover each of our bases from our left, right, as we're doing it. So, um, yeah, it probably is inevitably very similar, but um, primarily I use it just as a teaching tool for those who are familiar with Kali. It's amazing um, the connections between martial arts styles and I do you think it's important to earn a black belt or its equivalent in one style before you yes. branch out <laughs> yes I was actually I was talking at my uh Kobido class yesterday to a peer of mine about it and um this is not to speak ill of 5280 where I am but they started uh, um accelerating the rate at which you get your next degree of black belt so it used to be um you know you get your first degree in four you get your second degree in two, you get your third and three, you get four and four, five and five, six and six. Um, but after third degree, they made it so every three years you get your next degree. Um, and that's just how it would stay. And I always kind of had, probably because I just grew up in the system where it was that many more years to get to the next one. I um, probably just because I was used to it, but I also thought, you know, it really shows the commitment. It really shows how much better you are than you were as the last degree if you stayed in it just that much longer each time. So um, when I got my third degree, and so naturally it would have taken four to get my fourth, they made it so you get your fourth in three years. I refused my test uh, on that third year, and I went and got my fourth on the fourth year. But I was gonna do the same thing with my fifth degree, so really at the end of this year, 2021, I would get my fifth degree. But what um, made me get my fifth degree was all, the, all my students' parents talking to me, telling me I should, because Westminster's location needs a master to do the best for their kids, to, you know, help make decisions in the organization. I thought that is a good reason to do it. So, um, at least the way I hold myself, and this is again not in disrespect to my organization, um, I don't consider myself a master. I'll go by it, I'll roll my eyes at it, but um, one of my personal criteria um, to be a master is I want to certify in another martial art. I want to appreciate the differences between. I'm doing and another thing uh, kind of like how anybody who wants to be good at argument you got to know uh, and you got to know enough about something to hate it you got to know enough about something to disagree with it I think that's really important this day and age too but yeah. I not that I wanted to disagree with anything but I wanted to fully appreciate the differences and really have a better answer you know when my students ask me something because I know I had a lot of questions as a student I know a lot of instructors I look up to are uh, Master Gonzalez, Master Galloway. They um, they did many other martial arts, and uh, I recognized that back then. And many of my other instructors in the past, they always had another answer. If they didn't, they told you where to find it. And uh, they looked so <laughs> they looked so great. That's and so I wanted to be at least that. That's a great and, uh, another example of in integrity. Um, I don't know the answer i'm not gonna fake it like i do um and that yeah that that that's one of those other ironies of you don't what feel comfortable calling yourself a master but that's part of mastery is understanding what you don't know and being honest about it i would say though that modesty does kind of have a limit though not in terms of how modest a person can be but it can be self-destructive to a point though 
And I learned that from my dad because I was having this argument with him. He was like, go get that master. And I was like, no, I got to, no, I want to put it off. I want to do it. And he said, you're really good. And I was like, dad, you're my dad. You're, you're supposed to tell me that. And he said, no, you keep comparing yourself to these guys. And I was like, well, because they are extraordinary. They were great. I looked up to them as a kid. And he said a thing that really popped out to me. And this conflicts me about being a master nowadays still as a way to defend it. And it was that, um, he said, as I grew up, as I got better, I still let my memory of those masters still exceed. I never let myself catch up to what the mental image I had of them. So while it's always good to have goals, you know, and, um, you know, people to model yourself after, um, do monitor your progress on the way. It's not just, you know, counting degrees on the way to them, but, you know, your skills, what you've learned, what you've done in the meantime. Um, I still, I don't think it'll change my mind that I've caught up to them or even these after images of them. But he brought to my mind that as I got better, I just kept pushing them up too. It was uh, just kind of a, a worship position that I kept pushing up no matter how good I got. That's really, many, yeah. that's a great so, observation. I Because you're right, the, the humility, um, some of us are just inclined to... Um, have a more humble attitude toward our own accomplishments even. And so things like your black belt certificate or uh, the um, belt uh, boards, you know, that that show your advancement from white belt to gold and, and so forth, um, there can be a level of, well, why would I display that? Is that bragging? Um, but I think you answered that. The reason you do that is to remind yourself, I've made this progress. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, be proud of it, really do. And um, I wasn't expecting to be exactly like them. I didn't want to be either. But, um, you know, don't always keep comparing yourself to them. You can when you're setting your goals, but don't when you look at how far you've come in life either. That's um, awesome. Into anything. Yeah, yeah that's so I'm, I think I'm still learning to accept that still, um, but I'm glad I heard it. Um, but yeah, I... I do realize that I think what I've done up to now is definitely incredible. I still do shoot down a lot of my things. I would say, you know, honestly, I perfected a round kick um, um, probably when I was a second degree. So a lot of times I think I'm very behind on my kicks um, because just one day when I was second degree, a guy um, who did Olympic style Taekwondo grabbed my knee, grabbed my shoulder and got me there. And so I feel like I should have gotten that a long time ago. So when I teach my students how to do it, more correctly, you know, when they're orange belts, I feel like they're so ahead of me already. I feel they're so ahead of a master instructor. Um, so it's okay to compare yourself to others, but not in a destructive light. And um, so sometimes that's why I think modesty and being humble, you know, as great as it sounds, can uh, be self-destructive to a point. You have to, yeah, you know, weigh it with the self I think that comes up a lot in, for me, it came up in sparring. So I'm about 6'1", um, you know, was sparring with people, I guess, that I thought, I don't have the skills to control myself in a way when I'm an orange belt, uh, green belt, to, um, you know, I'm scared I'd hurt someone, basically. And so I reeled back. I mean, I, I wouldn't throw a punch or a kick. I would just move, move, move. I would take anything and I found out that I wasn't alone um, my instructors at ripple effect said you know you have to be aggressive <laughs> that doesn't mean you're hurting anybody nobody's gonna get hurt here that was a really important to total safety but that's what we're teaching you to assert yourself and of course that's a metaphor again for martial arts karate training especially for kids is that you need with your sister growing up, you know, I need to be able to assert myself in a way and sparring for me was huge in that. I feel you with that. <laughs> I have pulled a lot in sparring and honestly I think I did even more when I became an instructor and when I sparred students because I thought under no circumstance can I possibly hurt this. Well right. I mean truly you can't hurt a kid. Right. But I was like, I it's really on now. I definitely can't and kids yeah, no. learn so much yeah. in that in in that environment. Um, uh, I want to um, talk just for a second about the 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 physical uh, kind of skills that kids can learn. So when you were demonstrating in the seminar last week, you were talking a, a lot about 
using your left hand and your right hand. Um, you, you have two hands, the ambidexterity of using this weapon, whether you're using two pairs of nunchucks or just one, is really important. Did, did you feel your coordination physically um, increase as you started to work with this weapon? Absolutely, definitely. Um, and I would say that uh, outside of nunchucks, it's carried on to the world. Um, however, if I were to try and write my name with my left hand, I'm going to create a murder scene. But if I uh, both nunchucks, my left hand can very naturally do anything my right hand can. Only the very hardest tricks are things that my left hand can't pull off. But uh, I would say it's carried over in such light ways that maybe I'm cooking and steadying a pan while grabbing something out of a cupboard, you know, but very accurately. I wouldn't say it's, you know, revolutionized my life, but I feel very evened out. I feel very uh, zen and uh, balanced when I do double checks now because my hands are just working together, um, kneading the dough very evenly uh, as I work with the checks. But, yeah, so my left hand is very talented on these checks, but um, uh, it's kind of like you see it with anything else, it's just kind of uh, my second left foot again. So. <laughs> you ever seen The Princess Bride? Haven't, or it's been a long time. Okay, there's just a good uh, people might remember um, the scene, w the first sword fight, and the one competitor says, uh, the swordsman says, I have a secret for you, I'm actually not left handed. And he flips the sword into his right hand and he starts <laughs> dominating. And then the other guy in the black pirate suit, he goes, I have a secret for you, I'm not left handed either. And he flips the sword into his right and it's over. Um, but uh, again, you know, when you have to multitask with your own limbs, these weapons, they train your brain and your body. And when you're everything from driving a car that requires this kind of uh, operation to, I think you mentioned juggling or other feats, um, you, th this, is, this is incredible training. I do feel a different level of engagement when I do it. Not because of the interest, but I think my brain's just a lot more involved, too. Um, I really hit that zone a lot faster than if I would do other things that I enjoy. Um, you know, when you hit that zone, it seems like you tunnel vision on it, everything else kind of blacks out a little bit. I feel kind of the very moment I spend those checks, I teleport somewhere else. I'm really involved, full brain activity. Not sure if, you know, you put monitors if, if that's really the case, but at least to me, like, you know, that is uh, my pill from Limitless, if you've ever seen that movie. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, it's just like, wham, right in there. It all makes sense, um, just figuring it out. Yeah. Um, it's come to points where if I'm doing maybe moves and doubles, uh, sometimes you have a dominant hand in the movement. A lot of times, uh, I guess it just depends on which way I decide to train the move first. I usually tend to do it that way, and a lot of times the left hand is the dominant hand don't know why honestly i think it's just because i happen to but that means that my left hand will take on new things brand new things it's not catching up with my right hand anymore it can learn brand new things just as good as my right hand that's awesome that's right that. i mean 20... but again if you were to put a pencil in there it would uh yeah it would be terrible <laughs> right. Actually, if i invested that same amount of effort then you know um i think just the nunchucks are an analogy for just what you can do Right. I think that's what makes humans amazing during other uh, versus other animals. We can all evolve, but humans are very aware that they can evolve within their lifetime. We know that we can change ourselves over a shorter amount of time, and we capitalize on that a lot. Um, and gosh, I think that's one of the more inspiring things. I just chose to juggle nunchucks. <laughs> um, but, you know, other people, um, you know, they might want to pursue cello or they might, you know, want to be really good at archery. But the thing is, if you're not good at that, um, it doesn't matter if you're talented or not, you will improve. That's one thing I always tell my students because I teach them a lot of hard stuff because, uh, one, the hard stuff always looks cool. And two, because I want to drive home the point that practice will always beat talent, always. Um, now, if you have a talent and you practice it, then that's great. You're very fortunate and you should capitalize on it. But... If you practiced, you know, from the start and you kept going, you kept believing, um, you'll beat anything. I think, yeah, that's that's beautiful. And the um, we we call and you use the same terminology. We call the martial arts schools schools for a reason because schools yes. of any kind concentrate that learning. So a lot of I think it, it it can come like in the Karate Kid. Do you learn from the book or do you learn from YouTube? You can pick up some moves that way, but. The point of going to a school to learn martial arts, like anything else, is for to learn from people who are masters in what they teach. 
but also to have a place where that learning is concentrated. And right now it's concentrated virtually through the classes and the seminars, um, but you're still, you're in school uh, and that's really important. Yeah, it's good stuff. I would say also um, in terms of teaching style, I really like to use metaphors when I teach. I like to compare a movement that we're doing to uh, real life movements that everybody's done, that everybody can relate to because I think that really drives home the similarities um, kind of like, you know, when you were in elementary school, the teacher's having you count oranges in your hand because for some reason, Phil can hold 20 oranges in his hands. Um, but, you know, sometimes you take inventory of stuff that you had at home, you know, when you look in the fridge or when you do this or that, and that's stuff that kind of engages kids too. So I like to do the same thing with a lot of movements. When I uh, teach a round kick versus a side kick, I like to relate a round kick uh, because I think any instructor could relate. When you teach a round kick and a side kick, a lot of uh, beginner students end up making them look the exact same way. Right. Your round kick has a distinct round sweeping pattern while a side kick is straight in. And that's one of the hardest things to drive home. So I like to compare the round kick to a door on a hinge. And I like to compare the side kick to shooting an arrow. You load the arrow, you pull it back. Now, not everybody shot an arrow, but you get the idea. No arrow gets curved like in the movie wanted you can't curve the arrow um so i tell them you know your body is the bow you pick up that arrow you load it um and then you let it off go straight um that's uh, great you know the the old um samurai you know there's a when you talk about metaphor poetry uses metaphor to do something similar to create a, a, an awareness um a, a, a wisdom about something that you can't necessarily do in very literal terms and though the samurai in japan they would often were poets too and i wonder if there's a connection there or something i bet there, I bet there probably is it um really helps to um, get people to you know get a hard job done or you know to learn something new because, you know, if you connect a feeling that's familiar to somebody in some sort of way through some sense, uh, you know, sight, touch, um, not saying this place, but smell or whatever, then they can build on that to then, you know, make the bridge between the two topics and learn something new or to do something better as well. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, that can help with a lot of things. Uh, you know, when people describe a particular way to, uh, you know, you know, flip something in a pan while you're cooking or something, they might say, you know, it's like painting or something, or you want to shuffle this, like something, you know, or, but that's just one example. And so I usually like to build on that because a lot of people also are different learners. You have visual learners, you have the kinesthetic learners, uh, visual, they can see it and do it, or they need a picture paint of kinesthetic. Sometimes you got to put your hand in front, punch here, you got to move them and stuff. But metaphors is my particular approach to, uh, appealing to the masses because even the kinesthetic learners will be like, yeah, I've done that before. Now I just got to do it this way. Uh, the visual learners are like, oh, so just like that, then I'll do it like that. Um, so I usually try to hit it that way. And that's kind of my personal method of working smarter on uh, teaching to the masses, you know, for right. students who need different ways of being told. Right. Um, yeah. I would say it works every time. That's just my personal approach. And I like it a lot. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that range of teaching tools um, where constantly, you know, Ripple Effect is making new YouTube videos to demonstrate the forms. We have printouts that write the moves in sequence for those types of learners. We have um, pictures that demonstrate each of the moves so you can see how the movements go. And it's so important to helping people understand these because even something like Chun Ji has so much subtlety and and potential um with just a few simple movements um yeah i well hey thank you so much for spending so much time talking about this can i ask you just a couple more questions do you do you have any anime or video game um kind of martial artists that uh get you excited or who, who are some of your favorite characters in the it's like you totally knew me when you mentioned anime and video <laughs> games um well if anybody's watched naruto i would say naruto for one because like black belt he had a vision he had a goal he stayed right to it that's his ninja way that's the way he's gonna be uh if you don't know naruto be a good martial artist uh be a good person stay true to your values and don't let anybody tell you otherwise in the same anime naruto there's uh rock lee um 
he's probably my favorite character. Um, wears a ridiculous green jumpsuit, but um, he doesn't have the same mystical powers as everybody else. But so he trains on his physical powers. Uh, he can run faster than anybody. He can kick harder and faster than everybody. It's been straight up technique kicking a uh, a tree stump forever just to catch up to people who can't use these powers. And in doing that, he exceeds them anyway. So that one's really inspiring. And uh, I could never, whenever he ever came up with mine, a fictional character doing relentless push-ups. If I can't do 200 push-ups, I'm going to punish myself with 500 jumping jacks. <laughs> he gives himself this illusion of control over his failures, even if it's something that he was going to fail at. So if he fails, if he loses a fight or whatever, he's like, all right, because I made myself fail, I'm going to go do this to improve. And I kind of like that. Otherwise, I would say in uh, the fighting video game Tekken, um, I played a lot as Eddie Gordo or Christy Montero. They did Capoeira. Right. And when I saw in Tekken, I thought that was a made-up martial art. I thought they were breakdancing and kicking until I saw a Capoeira mentioned somewhere. It immediately took the martial art. So I look up to them because they helped me take an exciting new path in life. Um, otherwise, yeah, there's uh, no Laura Croft Tomb Raider huge for me. I played it ever since uh, I was old enough to use a computer. I was probably 1997 at the time. Uh, Tomb Raider 1, 2, 3, 4. What I really liked about her, she's very different from Lodercroft today, is uh, she was just some rich lady who just went and found artifacts because she wanted them. I like that independent. I like that sort of like, I don't care what factions are after this. I want it. I'm going to go get it. Nowadays, we have the reboot, the younger Laura, who's, uh, you know, doing the right thing, and that's very admirable as well. But she's also starting to grow into the classic Laura I knew, and I really like that. Also, she's a strong, independent female character, which, uh, you know, a lot of people put that up right now, but that was way back then, and that was very unique in its own way. So, yeah, you know, that's being unique, being true to yourself, uh, you know, having a goal and striving towards it no matter what is kind of what I personally uh, admired in these video games and anime, I would say all in all. That's awesome. That makes sense from everything that you've said, that sense of exploration, ambition, doing the right thing, being honest, um, and wanting to share and teach. Uh, those are great examples. I, well, thank you again, Mr. Yeah, Arkfeld. Uh, for people can find you on Instagram and YouTube. Is that the best way yes. to kind of see, connect with you? Yeah, so um, YouTube, you can just search my name, Devin Arkfeld. Uh, probably throw nunchucks in there if you have a hard time. Uh, Instagram, it's dev mode, uh, kind of like hard mode, but dev mode, and then nunchaku. And uh, yeah, I if anybody wants to learn deeper on nunchucks, I will talk your head off. So, <laughs> you know, send me a message, ask me what chuck should I get or anything like that, and I would be happy to talk to you. I would even be happy to, you know, set up a lesson and stuff like that because my goal is just to share uh, the joy of nunchucks like Bob Ross enjoyed me. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us at the seminar last week and um, this morning. Um, so signing off with Devin Arkfeld. Thank you so much, sir. Um, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Ripple Effect Martial Arts Podcast. Find episodes and more at rippleeffectmartialarts.com.